Welcome back to the What If series, where we are trying to start conversations for a better world based on the Ten Commandments. We're here in week six, and the sixth commandment is that we are not to murder. Now, Jesus took this a step further and said that we are not to harbor anger in our hearts and that we're to forgive. So we're here in downtown Chicago, and we're asking people the question, what is one of the hardest things for you to forgive? I'm pretty forgiving, so I don't know. I think most people, if they're honest with it, is themselves. I'd probably say myself. It's one of the hardest things for you to forgive. I forgive, but I just can't, we, we can't be friends anymore. <laughs> that's hard because I'm a real forgiving person. That That's a tough question because I, I would say that I'm a pretty forgiving person. It's hardest for me to forgive when I feel like people take my own power away. Oh, wow. <laughs> Great question. Anything regarding harming my parents, especially my mother? Betrayal. I've done a lot of my own making mistakes, so I think forgiveness is something that you learn. Uh, I would say low-down dirtiness, but that I'd probably cut that part out. Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church on this uh, fall Sunday. Uh, I want to step back uh, about 100 years to get started. So 100 years ago, there was a playwright by the name of Eugene O'Neill who emerged out of sort of nowhere to become uh, regarded globally as the greatest writer of his era. O'Neill's one of these guys that lived a hard life early. Uh, he was kicked out of colleges and fired from every job and drank himself into all kinds of problems. And eventually he took to sea. He uh, worked as a deckhand to sort of get away from everything. And he did that until his health broke down. He ended up back in uh, a U.S. hospital where he s- sort of convalesced for six months And when he got out, he decided he needed to do something, and he decided that what he wanted to do was to write. And so he began writing uh, one-act plays. And over time, these became two-act plays, three-act plays, ten-act plays, fourteen-act plays, five-and-a-half-hour plays, in which he was sort of plunging the depths of the human condition and looking at the darkness of the human heart. And he began to achieve acclaim. Three Pulitzer Prizes followed. He gets compared favorably to Shakespeare and Tolstoy. He gains global fame, wealth. And yet if you Google O'Neill today, in addition to seeing the list of his plays, one of the things that you are drawn to is an interview that he gave when he was a young man, 34 years old, but now has all this success. He's got everything going for him. But in this interview, he says, success is horrible. Success is hollow. It's no better than failure. Life is miserable. Everyone's a fake. I'm a fake. I mean, just a very dark perspective on life. So hold that thought for a second. I'm going to come at my topic from the opposite perspective for a moment. If you have been here for a while, you may be aware that my wife has two cats. And uh, 
I'm not much of a cat person, but uh, I love my wife, and so we have two cats, and we have, we have reached a, a little compromise in which I think the agreement is they allow me to live in the house. And uh, we have conversations about the cats from time to time, and she keeps saying, like, how can you not be amazed at their beauty and at their athleticism and, and, and at their kitten-soft fur, and they glorify God every day, and they're perfect, and how can you not see this? And I, I actually just sort of have given this very little thought over the years. But a while back, I thought, so why don't I like these cats? Why am I not sort of enamored by these cats like my wife is? And I thought, one of the things is certainly possible that I'm jealous of them. Uh, they are athletic, and they do get to sleep 20 hours a day, and their food bowl is full all the time. And, you know, there are times when I look at that and I go, that's not a bad life. But when I seriously considered that, I thought, yeah, no, I don't want to be a cat. I mean, it's pretty boring. I think that they travel outside of the vet, you know, uh, probably two, three hundred yards from our house. It's not a life that I feel drawn to. And yet, they are content, serene, right? I mean, there's a sense in which they seem to have life figured out, and they're very happy. So how is it that they can be happy and content and Eugene O'Neill with global fame and money and, and three Pulitzer Prizes and all these other things is so miserable? What is it about humans that leads us to be disrupted? Could it be that we were made for something even greater than three Pulitzer Prizes? Could it be that you have even greater value than that? This is the idea that animates the sixth commandment. So, verse four, deal with our horizontal relationship with God. The next six, called the second tablet of the law, deal with our relationship with each other, and our family is the starting point, and, and, and the relationship between the husband and wife is sort of the key to the family, and so we looked at that last week. We now move to this commandment, number six, that everybody expects. It makes sense. We, we expect God and government to tell us that we can't kill each other. You possibly have other expectations about the sixth commandment. For instance, you expect this one to be relatively simple. You might even know there's only two words in the Hebrew. Don't murder. You perhaps expect that this will be one in which you come off feeling reasonably unscathed. Most of us don't end up murdering anybody. Perhaps you have, but you probably haven't murdered many people, so you think... You know, I got a bad track record on some of these other ones, but the sixth, I'm doing okay. And you might also expect that I will say something about Chicago. If you think about a commandment to not murder and you think about Chicago, well, obviously, uh, the guy's got to say something about Chicago. I was at a conference this week in Chicago, and uh, as we got up for, for a break, one of the guys not from Chicago said to me, uh, and it was 
7 o'clock at night. He said to me, I was going to walk outside a little bit. I said, okay. He goes, am I safe? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, you're safe. Uh, there are people shot every two hours and 29 minutes in Chicago. Someone gets shot. And every 11 hours and 59 minutes, somebody gets murdered. It happens a lot. Uh, so you might have expectations about how this sermon will unfold. It's uh, going to be simple. You're going to get off scot-free, and I'm going to say something about Chicago. So let me just say uh, you will be surprised, hopefully not disappointed, but uh, it's not simple. So the, the implications of the Sixth Commandment go in a whole lot of directions. I'm not going to head down these paths, but you can imagine abortion, abortion euthanasia, uh, infanticide, capital punishment, war. I mean, there's a lot of implications for this. Uh, you are not unscathed. Once Jesus gets a hold of this commandment, <laughs> we're all in trouble, uh, as I will explain. And uh, I'm not actually going to say much about Chicago. I do think, I, I'm, I am persuaded by my friends who are, who are pastors and who, uh, who are frequently uh, pastors in, in urban settings and who frequently talk to me about the need for the church to do more about violence and gun violence and murder and other things. I do think that this is part of what the church needs to do, and I happen to think that one of the best things the church can do on all kinds of fronts in terms of social justice issues is to see people become more like Christ and to see the number of people who are following Christ go and grow. And so it's not, it, these are not the kind of sermons that I preach, but, but uh, we want to do something about that. I actually am going to do something a little different than that. I'm going to do what I generally do. I want, I want you to understand this commandment. I want to talk about the scope of it. I want to talk about why murder is wrong. And I, I want to bring you into the New Testament because each week we've tried to look at a, at a New Testament passage that reflects on this Old Testament commandments. And then I want to share a couple observations that sort of, I think, flow uh, downhill from all this. So let me start by noting that uh, this commandment has two big implications. Two things you've got to know to understand it. The first one is that murder is wrong. And murder is uh, spoken against, I think, most powerfully by the way it is used in Genesis chapter 4. So, as you may know, Genesis 1 and 2 tell the story of creation. Genesis 3 is the fall. Sin, curse, the promise that God is going to send a rescuer. And then Genesis 12 begins the story. So if we were to go to a play that was enacting the Bible... I don't think it would start in Genesis 1. I think it would start in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham. And that Genesis 1 through 11 is all the stuff you would just read about in the playbill that says, okay, there was a creation, there was a, there was a rebellion, there was a curse. All of humanity is struggling, but there is a promise. And the question is, is the promise going to be fulfilled and how will it be fulfilled? And that's the drama. And then you pick up with Abraham and the call of Abraham. And you go, okay, we've got to follow this guy. And you watch as, as Abraham becomes, you know, doesn't have any kids. And then finally he does. And there's a lot of drama there. And then he grow, the, the, the tribe grows and it becomes a nation and then it falls apart. And so that's the story. 
What is missing from that account is what happens between Genesis 4 and Genesis 11. <laughs> and, and something very specific happens. I mean, there's some events. It's the flood and it's, it's, it's uh, the Tower of Babel and the good bloodline is wiped out. But what we really are getting there is a message. And the message is humanity is in deep trouble. So everything's good, Genesis 1 and 2, fall, Genesis 3. Genesis 4 through Genesis 11 says it's not a flesh wound. Humanity is in bad trouble. And everything that they are doing is not working. And, and exhibit A on this is a murder. Right? When God is saying this is how bad they are, Cain kills his brother Abel. Can't ever remember that. Cain kills Abel because Abel wasn't able to defend himself, but it's brother killing a brother. And it is offered up as an example of how bad things are, how profoundly broken you and I are. We can't fix ourselves. And even after the flood, when there's sort of a reset, <laughs> we still can't fix ourselves. So murder is wrong. The second thing you need to know to understand where this is going is that the word, the operative word is murder, not kill. So I say this because the King James Version uh, translated it, thou shalt not kill. I, I also say this because I got a very nasty letter uh, after I taught on this at some time back and which I did not explain that it's murder, not kill. And somebody uh, came after me for sort of completely missing the point. I think, I think, I don't know, uh, that, they, that their message was that we shouldn't be killing anyone or anything. And maybe it was an argument, you know, in favor of being uh, a vegan. I, I couldn't figure it out. What, I, what, I, what, I, what struck me most profoundly about it was that um, they clearly hadn't listened or cared to listen to much of anything that I said because they called me a lot of names in this letter. And I thought, wow, if you followed what Jesus says in the New Testament about getting angry and calling somebody a fool— uh, you're guilty of breaking this commandment, and here they are calling me worse than that. Uh, it's not, by the way, the most ironic of my hate mail. I have a file. Uh, maybe, maybe you have an entry in that file, but I have a file. The most ironic of my hate mail uh, letters is the person who, um, who wrote a scathing letter uh, to me for being a coward for saying before I preached on hell that I did not like the idea of hell. I didn't like the doctrine of hell, but I defended it and I tried to explain it. And uh, they wrote to me and said I was a coward for not taking a stronger stand. And then the letter was anonymous, which I thought, oh, that's just rich. So, uh, so I, I, I have gotten more ironic pieces of uh, criticism than, than the criticism about missing the point about hell and murder. But I just want to say uh, there are several different words in the Hebrew language that can use, be used to describe to ending someone's life. And the one that is used here is, is a relatively obscure term, but it means ending someone's life in an act of vengeance. And so it is, it is murder, it's not manslaughter, it's murder, it, it, it's a specific context. Plus, 
in addition to, to arguing for that reason because of the word choice, there's a number of other passages in Scripture that talk about uh, self-defense, that goes into soldiers uh, in war and other things in which it's clearly a different category than what is being spoken of here in the Sixth Commandment. So, uh, murder is wrong and the concept is murder. So why is murder wrong? Well, murder is wrong because we don't actually own our life. God does. And we don't own anyone else's life. God does. So God is the creator of everything and everywhere. And he is the sustainer of all life. And he maintains all rights. I love the line by Abraham Kuyper, a great theologian. He was also the prime minister. He was the uh, founder of the Free University of Amsterdam. He was the editor of the newspaper. He sort of does, you know, ten things better than most of us do one. He did them all. But one of his great lines uh, was that there is not one square inch in the entire universe about which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. (laughs) He owns everything. We are just stewards temporarily entrusted with his resources and accountable for how we use it. We cannot make claims to things that are not ours. Life doesn't belong to us. This, by the way, is, is one of the reasons why I think that suicide is wrong. Now, let me pause here and say I do not believe that suicide is an unforgivable act. There, there is an argument that gets made by, uh, by some churches to say that sins fall into two categories. There are minor sins called venial sins. There are more profound sins called mortal sins. And if you commit a mortal sin, you're separated from God unless you confess that sin. And so, of course, with suicide being a mortal sin, you don't have a chance after you're dead to confess that sin. It separates you from God I, I don't, I don't, that's not found in the Bible. I don't follow that logic at all. I think that the love and grace of God is more powerful than all of our sin. And so I, I, I don't go there. And there's a, been in my family and in my wife's family, there's been a lot of suicide. And so I've wrestled with this. So I'm not saying that sin, that suicide is an unforgivable sin, but it's, it's wrong for us to end our life because our life isn't ours. Your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. This is crazy talk in this culture. (laughs) It's absolute crazy talk to suggest that we don't have ultimate rights over our life and whatever we want to do is okay. Whatever I want to do is okay. I am free. I am free from any expectation. I am free from nature. I am free from anything. Whatever I feel like is is good. That's, That's the message of culture. And, and the biblical starting point is very different than that, is to say, no, we are actually owned by God. So a second reason that I don't think that uh, murder is okay is because not only are we owned by God, we are made in the image of God. The Imago Dei. Genesis 1 says God created them in his image, male and female. He created them in his image. In the image of God, he made us. He made you. The Imago Dei is part of what it means to be human. We have the image of God in us. Now, 
The challenge here is we don't really know what that means. And we don't know what it means because the Bible doesn't articulate at any length what it means to be made in the image of God. And we also don't know how much of that image remains. So, time of sin, the image of God is broken. It's, it's shattered, and there was a big theological debate in the 20th century over whether much of it remains or not, how much of the image of God uh, survived the fall. We don't know. What we do know is that there's a sense in which everything reflects the glory of God. There is, there is not just supernatural revelation, which we find in the Bible and which we find primarily in, in Jesus. There is also natural revelation, things that God made, aspects of the creation that reflect on the Creator. So Psalm 19 is the primary verse here. The heavens declare the glory of God. Day by day, they declare the glory. Right, Night by night, they, they continue to speak to us. So, you look at the sky some night and you actually get a clear view of the Milky Way and it can take your breath away as you think about the awesomeness and power of God. Or you look at a mountain and, and, and you're having a little transcendent moment when you realize, oh my gosh, that's huge. And yet that's small compared to who God is in the universe or, or the ocean, or a baby, or something. There's aspects of, of all of life and creation that can amaze us. They reflect, Psalm 19 and other passages say, they reflect on who God is. But we reflect on that even more. Because we are made in his image. So we are higher than animals. And there are opportunities and expectations that come with that. And part of the reason murder is wrong is because we are not allowed to end that image. There was a, uh, uh, on Saturday Night Live a while back, there was a, a musician who took a picture of a person and ripped it in half. Right? And it was a very symbolic act. (laughs) <laughs> but I thought it was, it, it, that sort of speaks to this idea that we are made in the image of God and you can't end someone's life. You can't rip that picture. That is an affront, not just to that person, but also to God. So that's the basis we get out of, largely out of the Old Testament. Then we come into the New Testament and Jesus expands on this. Most famously and prominently in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. There, um, Jesus preaching, and he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So uh, this, is, this is sort of shocking stuff, but this is what Jesus does throughout, uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He is, he's offering a commentary, in one sense, on the law, and he's interpreting the law for us, and he's, he is implying that uh, it's, it's not just our actions that matter, but it's our heart 
It's, it's our thoughts. I remember the first time I realized that that was what was being said. I, I was not yet a, a Christ follower. I was intrigued. I was reading the Bible. I was trying to figure this out. And I had lots of questions. And, and several nights a week, I would call this guy and just for hours, I would just ask my questions. And I remember talking about this particular passage, and I remember him explaining this to me. And I remember where I was standing in the room, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, Woodruff, if you become a Christian, do not become the kind of fanatic that believes this, right? Because this is really invasive and disruptive. If God knows your thoughts and you're responsible for your thoughts, you are in deep weeds. Well, um, yes, God knows our thoughts. And this is part of, part of the purpose of the law, remember, is uh, to help us understand that we can't keep it. Part, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are rigorously trying to keep the, the letter of the law. And he's saying, you, you're missing the main point, right? Part of the purpose of the law is to help us understand that we cannot earn God's favor. This is a grace-based exchange. We are dependent upon God's grace and mercy and love because we cannot get over that bar. We are too deeply fallen. And that, that comes out in this passage. The implication from Jesus is that you are so important, everything about you matters even your thoughts. You are that important. Everything about you matters to God, including your thoughts. And so if we are going to attack someone and, and to call them a fool, the, the, the Greek word here is, is, uh, is sort of an etymological derivation of moron, but it's not, uh, it's not an, an intellectual fool, it's a moral fool. If we're going to, if we're going to attack someone's reputation, right, we are guilty before God, even if we just think about it. Now, there is anger, of course, that is righteous. There's anger that we should feel when we see other people being hurt and harmed. Uh, injustice that should cause us to be frustrated. But that's not the kind of anger most of us have. That's not the kind of anger that is being, uh, that, that, that Jesus is speaking about here. So the first way the New Testament updates this commandment is by suggesting that, um, that our thoughts matter. We are guilty, in one sense, of murder if we are wishing someone would die. The second way the New Testament updates this commandment is almost in the opposite direction. And that is to say... Uh, Matthew 10, 28, that what we ultimately need to be worried about is not our life (laughs) and being murdered. What we ultimately need to be worried about is our eternity. So in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear him who is able to destroy your body, but unable to destroy your soul. Instead, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, don't fear somebody that can kill you. Murder is not the worst thing. Fear God. Have a holy respect for God. If if what you see is all you get, 
if this life is it, if this is all we get, then being killed is the worst thing that can happen. But, but the whole point that Jesus says is, no, we're going to live forever. We have the image of God. We're going to live forever. We have a soul. There will be a physical resurrection. We're going to live in the presence of God in glory, or we're going to live eternally cut off from him. You want to live today in light of eternity. So, there are some New Testament updates to this commandment. I think there are also a couple of implications that, uh, that we need to be aware of. And for this, I, I'm, I'm thinking of two things in particular. Um, these are, the first one's in the margin, and it's directed at those of you who are skeptics. So I mentioned I was at this conference uh, this week, and one of the things that one of the speakers at the conference said is that pastors need to more rigorously engage in counter-catechesis. <laughs> okay, uh, so catechesis is, uh, is a term that talks about education. Catechism is, is one of the derivations of that. And so a catechism is, is, a, is a teaching method in which you ask questions and the questions are answered. And so uh, especially with children, although not exclusively, you ask a series of questions and the children learn, the people learn the answer, memorize the answer to the questions, and you understand the Christian faith when you've worked your way down all the questions. So one of the more famous questions that gets repeated is the first question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief and of man. What is the chief aim of man? And the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, in some sense, like the creeds, which are, which are written to help summarize the essential truths of the Christian faith, the catechisms are written to help summarize the, attention, the essential aspects of the Christian faith. And, and what you learn when you dig into the catechisms is that they don't answer every question. They were written at a particular time and moment, and they are, they are addressing the prevailing views of the day. And there's a sense in which the passage I read out of Matthew chapter 5 has a little bit of that cadence. Jesus says, you have heard it said this by the Pharisees. I'm saying this, right? So he's addressing the issue. So, so today, the prevailing view uh, in, in culture is that we are completely free and independent and, uh, and, and that life has the greatest value. And, and this whole idea that we're going to live forever, this whole idea of, of not murdering is, uh, is viewed through a very different lens. So let me just, let me just say this. Perhaps the reason that some of you have achieved everything that you set out to achieve, but like O'Neill, are still not fulfilled. Right? You, got, you wanted this job, and you got that job. You wanted to make this much money, and you make that much money, or more. You wanted this, and you got this. But you find I'm still not ultimately satisfied. is because you were created for something greater than that. 
You were made in the image of God. And, and that means you are expected to mirror his glory. And like a mirror that is set in front of the sun, it mirrors the sun. And a mirror that is set in front of, of something that's dark mirrors darkness. And you have not fully turned yourself to reflect the sun. So one of the points that I especially appreciated that this, this speaker made was that we not only, the pastor not only needs to preach the gospel, but needs to, needs to critique the culture by the gospel. And I just want to say, I, I, I get asked, um, it's a little bit far afield, but, but some of you are here skeptical of the claims of Christ. And I just want to say, we, we live in a time that is not really thinking out the implications of the worldview that we adopt. So one of the questions that is thrown at Christians, thrown at me by others, it's a good question, but the question is, is uh, if God is all-loving and God is all-powerful, then why, why does evil exist? Why is there problems? Why, why are things going bad? And it's a, it's a serious question, and it depends upon whether I'm getting asked that question by a you know, 21-year-old sophomore in college who's just back from his philosophy class. And the next question they're going to ask me is, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big he can't lift it? Uh, you know, so, okay, so are we going to play mind games, or, or, or are you, is your heart seriously broken by a tragedy that has happened in your life? And we're dealing with this at a, at a much more important level. But... In addition to answering the question and trying to go after the question and to point out that, you know, answers are going to fall a little bit short of what God's plans are. We can't fully understand God, but he did show up. I mean, I think that's the big, the big deal about the Christian faith is God showed up. He came and he suffered alongside us and he understands what this is like. And he's promised he's going to make it better. But one of the things that you just sort of hold up and point back is to say, you realize, don't you, that you have to embrace the Christian faith to ask the question. Like, why is it even bad? Why is murder wrong? If all we are is a bag of chemicals, I mean, if all we are is a naked ape, then, then why is murder wrong? If life is just, you know, I mean, if, if we're no fundamentally different than a cat or a mosquito or a plant, then why is it wrong for you to be killed? Why does it matter? You are assuming the dignity of humanity, which is a holy Christian assumption <laughs> when you say that, that you disagree the fact that, that God allows suffering to happen. These are big questions. I, 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 we can't fully embrace them all, but I just want to say if you're skeptical of these claims— you need to look deeper, and you also need to look deeper at your own assumptions. Because I would be willing to guess they don't hold up very long. The second sort of downhill implication of this commandment to not murder is the grand positive that human life has value. And this one applies to everyone, not just to skeptics. Look, what... What God is saying to us, especially what Jesus is saying to us in, in Matthew, is human life matters, and you do not want to be callous towards other human beings. 
Like, we need to be aggressively compassionate. We need to be kind and caring. Because people have been made in the image of God and they matter. And I can think of no better way to end than by, um, by citing C.S. Lewis out of his great sermon, The Weight of Glory, in uh, which he says this, and I'll end with this. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about the glory of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to be one of these, to one of these other destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to him that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The big ultimate message of the Sixth Commandment is that human life has value and we need to treat it like it has value. Yours and everyone around you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have not appreciated the life that we have been given in so many different ways. We discount our own as we discount those around us. And we miss out fully appreciating the glory of being made in your image. For that, we ask for forgiveness, and we ask for insight, and we pray for, um, for the kind of love for each other that you have for us. Guide us to that end. Thank you again for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.